Hello, Brad here. Just to say we're super proud that the Friday 5pm podcast is sponsored by the Malt Miller, the UK's best home brew store. We use the Malt Miller for all of our homebrew experiments, as well as tapping them up for advice and binging on their awesome YouTube channel all the time. That's why whenever we release a homebrew video, we put a recipe kit live on the Malt Miller, so you can brew with the exact same amazing ingredients that we did. The same ingredients used by pro brewers. So alongside the Malt Miller's nitro-flushed hops, cold-stored yeast and milled-to-order malts, you can pick up recipe kits for our Five Points Best Bitter, Russian River West Coast IPA, and now the fastest beer in the world, a hazy session IPA that goes from grain to glass in less than 48 hours. Sign up to their newsletter at tinyurl.com forward slash maltmiller to get 5% off your first order. With the Malt Miller's amazing customer service and Johnny's 48-hour recipe, you could order the ingredients on a Monday and be drinking the beer by the weekend. Speaking of which, it's Friday. It's 5pm. So enjoy this week's Friday 5pm podcast. Hey everyone and welcome to episode 7 of The Bubble. Uh, today we ask the question, what is weenie? What is weenie and what is backspitting? Yep. Uh, and why can't you call wine wine if it's in a can? Man, there's so many things that we address today, but um, first and foremost, we look at urban wineries, which mm. I didn't think was a thing until very recently. No, not a bubble I was aware of. So it turns out, good listeners, that wine is being made in London um, and across the country, and you don't need lovely weather and south-facing hills and good soil and the ability to grow grapes just to make really, really good wine. No, the, the ability to grow grapes shouldn't stand in your way of, of making wine, which sounds kind of crazy, but if you think about beer, you know, the breweries don't grow their hops or their malts or their yeasts um, and just use water out of the tap, it's not their own water. So really, we should have seen that coming. Uh, and urban wine should have been something we're like, oh yeah, of course, urban wine. Yeah, well, well before craft beer, yeah. these guys should have been like, this is doable. Yeah. Um, but, and, and it is now, and it's a growing trend. So we sat down uh, with Warwick Smith, uh, who is the founder of uh, an amazing winery in Bethnal Green, heart of Hipsterville uh, in London, called and, Renegade. And to make it extra hipster, it's in a railway arch. It's in a railway arch, of course. Which is our fourth or fifth podcast in a railway or yeah i've got really good at trying to reduce the sound of railways uh well railways of trains is what i'm uh, <laughs> flirting with there um and i'm not getting very good at it if i'm honest um but yeah so it was a really interesting thing to see the parallels of beer but i mean it, all, like in all the episodes we've done you immediately get miles away from beer and see the mad worlds that these people exist in uh, and rely upon much like the worlds that we do just have lots of very um Lots of things in common, and also a million things that you just like. So, sorry, say that again? Yeah, it, it is really bonkers what Warwick's doing down at Renegade. You know, sourcing grapes, but obviously your lead times are very, very different. You can't produce all year round. Um, I mean, it sounds ideal. You just make the wine, and then you sit on it, and then that's you for the rest of the year. Yeah, is, so is that, that's what he does, Sounds right? pretty easy, yeah, basically, yeah. But quite, quite the opposite, it seems. Um, a really hard slog, a really difficult industry to get in and I suppose the craft beer industry has come a long way in the last 10 years and people are a lot more open-minded and the wine industry is very much not um, and he's breaking down those barriers so it was very very interesting sitting down with him. Yeah definitely Um, so this is Warwick Smith of Renegade and uh, we'll see you in about 50 minutes time. I love that stuff Been drinking it for years drinking it for years 
Drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. You know, I, I really recently decided to add more hops to it. To it. Hops to it. You know, I, I really recently decided to add more hops to it. To it. So Warwick, thanks so much for agreeing to come on a what is ostensibly a beer podcast. Um, what would be really useful is to just sort of know a little bit about Renegade and a little bit about you, so people have some context. Yeah, sure. So, um, so we are so Renegade is an urban winery, um, and that means essentially that we we make wine. It doesn't mean that we grow the grapes. So uh, we're a producer of wine, not a grower of grapes. We're not a vineyard, and so essentially the, the whole the, the whole ethos is. We try and bring winemaking into the centre of London, uh, and we buy small parcels of high-quality grapes from producers all around the UK and around Europe. We race them back to London in refrigerated trucks, and we make all the wines here in London. And so the, the actual winemaking period must be pretty small. Yeah, so, so all in the Northern Hemisphere, most of the grapes are harvested between the end of August and the end of, kind of October. So we, we have about an eight- to ten-week window of all the winemaking. Well, all the pressing and fermenting. Yeah. And then what do you do the rest of the time? Just chill out? <laughs> yeah, mainly just chill out. A little bit of bottling, filtration, sales, events, you know. Hang out with billionaires. Hang out with billionaires in Courchevel. Yeah. That's the way we roll. <laughs> it's not how the beer world rolls. <laughs> no, it's not how the wine world rolls either. Maybe we'll get into your scrapes with Rolls Royce a little bit later. Oh, God, don't say that. I'm never going to get that deal signed. <laughs> Um, so what kind of wines are you making here? Are they more on the raw side? Are they on the classic side? Yeah, so, so this is a, the, kind of the background and philosophy kind of goes like this. Um, so I'm not from a wine background. I'm not from the wine world. I used to, I spent most of my working life working in, in the kind of finance world. The, not, not banking, but kind of that kind of same industry. And so I know it's a bit cliche that people who go from finance into things like beer or wine, but I honestly hadn't made millions in my old life. It was literally just I wanted to change a life. I wanted to make, I wanted to make something that was consumed and had a story to it, and had some passion involved, rather than just flogging investment funds or whatever it was I was doing. So why, why wine then, to, and not beer? Or well, I, I mean, I think that... So firstly, I love wine, and I didn't love beer that much at the time. Or I liked it, but I didn't have much passion for it. Um, and I think that, to a certain extent, and I, I know all your, your people might hate me for saying this, that, that the craft beer space, I think, is get, getting quite saturated. It's, it's becoming... It's getting to the point where to be... Being, you'd have to be very differentiated to make a splash in the, in the, in the space now. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, how many wineries are in London? Yeah, exactly. And how many craft breweries are there? You know, so, count. Yeah, 100, <laughs> over 120. Yeah, so I just thought, I think the craft beer space is saturated. I, kind of, I think that was something to get into maybe eight, ten years ago, uh, unless you're doing something really exceptional and different. And same with gin. I think, you know, London... Yeah, this is bad, yeah. Yeah, if not worse. Like, London Dry is a style, not a location. And so you can make London Dry anywhere in the world. And, you know, you've heard that expression, like, jags, just another gin. You know, I just think it's so hard for people to tell the difference, really, with, with some big production gins. And so I thought, what does... You know, wine, for me, it has... It has kind of art, it has travel, it has history, it has geography, it has food, it has interesting people, it has enjoyment, it has alcohol. It kind of has, for me, it has kind of everything that I like. When you were getting out of the finance world, whatever you did, did it have to contain alcohol? Uh, no, honestly, no, honestly not. And to be honest, I mean, I, I love this project and I'm, I'll, I'll go to my deathbed on it, but 
I tell you what, getting into the drinks business has been tough on my body yeah. because it is a constant drink fest. And I, and I think people who come from a drinks background realize early on that you have to spit, whereas I came from a drinking background. So I never, I never, I don't, I never like spitting. Yeah. So, yeah, I still swallow far too much. Or as the professionals call it, back spitting. They call it, like, with a, with a smile or with a serious face? They call it backspitter. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that quite a few times. Oh You're my a backspitter. <laughs> yeah, no, some people say, oh my God, this stuff's so good, I'm going to have to backspit it. Oh, Jesus. This is the bubble podcast about <laughs> beer, uh, just in case anyone's tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, just I just thought, and, and also, the urban winery thing, it, it's, it's a new concept to the UK. I mean, it's, it's funny how urban wineries have been a thing in the States for probably a decade. Like, New York has eight. Colorado has half a dozen, maybe. San Francisco has loads. Or, uh, Oak, Portland, Oregon has loads. Austin, Texas has some. You know, it's, it's not unusual. Australia has some. Paris has two. Marseille has one. Brussels has one. And how many are in the UK that you know of? Uh, there's about three or four. And, I've, and even in the last two weeks, I've heard of two more opening. One in Cambridge and one in Bristol. And were you, you number one? No, we were number two. We were officially number two. And just... Keep tapping me and reminding me only to say nice things about everyone. <laughs> no. Well, after a bit of backspitting, we'll see if that rule applies to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Is, it, is it a friendly world? The it is, world? it is, yeah. There's, there's four of us, uh, and I, we know all of them quite well. We went out for a beer a couple of weeks ago. You got out for a beer? Yeah, we did. You know, but there's a, another, expre- I'm going to be following this expression thing. There's like an expression in winemaking which says it takes a lot of good beer to make good wine. Hmm. Because you'll find that most winemakers won't drink a lot of wine, especially during the season or the harvest. Because if you're, if you're quaffing all day, you can, you can sip on a beer, but you can't, you can't stay yeah. capable. And if you're wine. harvesting, that's hard work. You probably want something you can neck rather yeah, than... Exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, talking of necking, shall yeah. we try some wines and let's crack see on. where it takes us? All right, so let's go, let's go for our kind of most unusual first, which is, uh, we call it Bethnal Bubbles. It's a Citra Mosaic Hopped English sparkling wine. Fuck yes. Yeah. So the, <laughs> the underlying grape is called Saval Blanc. So just pretend this is a bit more fizzy than it is. Yep. Uh, it's been open for a day or two. Oh, shit. So the story with this wine is um, the underlying grapes, Saval Blanc, are often used in traditional method or sparkling wine production in the UK. It grows really well. It's, it it yields really well, but it's probably not the most complex and interesting of, of grapes to work with. Um, so we fermented this. We left it on the leaves for a long time with the idea that it would be a good wine in its own right. And it would get more complex and better over the months on, on the leaves. It turned out that it didn't really. It just stayed quite boring. So rather than throw it away or do something traditional with it, we thought, how can we you know, pimp this up a bit and make it interesting? And a, a little, an urban winery in Colorado that I'd worked at or spent some time with used to make, or I think they still do make, a dry-hopped Californian Sauvignon Blanc carbonated in can. And so we thought, what could we do? Maybe a slightly more artisanal version of that. And so, yeah. And that, is there it is. Uh, using, using hops and wine a commonplace? Not that I'm aware of, no. I, I've never heard anyone else in Europe doing it, and I've only ever seen this one winery in the States doing it. And so, so we did lots of trials. I absolutely love it. Do you? It's, yeah. <clears throat> it's so interesting because you, your nose isn't entirely sure what's coming from the hop and what's coming from the grape. It's blended really well, whereas a lot of hop ciders, you're like, well, there's that sharp, grassy thing, hops. There's the apple thing. With this, it's 
There's a familiar, familiarity, but it's not. Yeah, I, I wish I'd been blind when I tasted this and somebody had said, is this wine or beer? Just It would throw you a little bit. You'd have do. to yeah, say yeah, wine, yeah. but it yeah. would. Yeah, so when we trialled it, we did we tried Nelson Sauvignon, Amarillo, Citra and Mosaic. And in the end, we went with a, a 50-50 Citra Mosaic blend. And we'd, we, we, we hopped it at quite a high level because... Uh, we, we, Josh, my old winemaker, and I weren't from that kind of beer world. We didn't know how hops worked with beers or wines. And we were told that the aromatics of the hops would drop off quite quickly after about three or four months of, of being in a, in, a, in a beer. And so we, over, we, we added quite a lot more than we thought we needed to because we thought that it would, we wanted it to last and age a bit on the, on the lees. So, but actually, with the acidity of this wine, which is quite high, it actually retains that uh, expression of those hops quite well. Mm. And when do you put the hops in during the process? So we make the base wine first. So we, we ferment the English Saval juice into a base wine. Then we, we aromatize it. So we put the hops inside uh, muslin or hessian, well, I don't know what, silk bags. And then we, a bit like big tea bags. And then we, add the, we, we fill the tank up again on top of the uh, bags and we leave it for a week. And then we uh, just take the bags out, add a little bit more yeast and sugar and it goes straight into bottle. So it's secondary ferments in the bottle, and we don't filter it, so we leave it cloudy. Yeah. It's just, it's beautiful. Like, there's, there's some soft kind of refreshing minerality. There's some proper kind of white wine, gooseberry, grapey stuff, and then just this little hint of citra at the end, which so just boggles so, me. But it, it really throws you. Yeah. I don't know if I, as you said, drank it blind, if I have a clue what it is. <laughs> yeah, we, it was, we, we did it as an experiment, but it has proved quite popular and i think it's been quite useful for us because it's kind of it's it's so different that it's given us a little bit of a point of difference yeah against kind of other i mean it's, there's no other english sparkling wines made this way it's also just that little hint of bitterness with the carbonation makes it feel really rounded at the finish not kind of acidic like a lot of white wines finish yes it's, yeah it's brilliant This summer, I'm going to be hosting talks at the Manchester, Bristol and London Craft Beer Festivals, giving festival goers the chance to attend tutored tastings, rare beer pours, meet the brewers and even guided tours of the bars. These three festivals are the highlights of my events calendar, featuring some of the world's best breweries with delicious restaurant pop-ups, great music and a really welcoming party atmosphere. It's the third year I've been hosting the We Are Beer Tastings table, but for the first time I'm delighted to offer all of our listeners, viewers and Patreons £5 off a ticket when you use the code CBC5. Just hit the link in the description to buy. See you there. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think there's, there's loads of potential with this one to try different grapes, different hops, different methods. I mean, imagine, imagine like a skin contact version of this with Howard Sauvignon or something, you know, something else. I mean, there's, there's so much potential. Yeah, and I think you could start, you know, doing collaborations with brewers and getting their expertise on how to manipulate the hops the yeah. way you want to. Yeah. So there is the sort of growth in it is, is mad. Yeah, fingers crossed. You, you, you talked about, um, so obviously you're breaking some serious rules here and there's probably some wine, any wine listeners might be a bit like, what, what, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier about you, you, you don't necessarily claim to make English wine, but you, you yeah. see that as a sense it's, of freedom. It's, it's a funny thing. I mean, when we started this business, the plan was, I mean, honestly, so I didn't come from a wine background. I knew that we wanted to make high quality, interesting wines. 
But one of the first questions that our winemaker asked me at the beginning was, what sort of style do you want to make and what sort of wine do you want to make? And I, I think I was just too naive to really know what I wanted. And so what we did in the first year was we made very classic wines. We'd go to the vineyards and we'd say to the, the, the growers and the winemakers there, so in Italy, we'd go to the Pinot Noir vineyard and say, what should we do with your grapes? And they would essentially tell us to do exactly what they did because they knew that what they did resulted in a high-quality, well-made wine. And it turned out that actually that was completely the opposite thing that we should have done because we shouldn't be making, in my opinion, copycat wines. We have the amazing flexibility in London of not having any appellation rules. So we have no Bordeaux body or Burgundy body or DOCG uh, regulations in London which say that we have to only age in French oak, that we can't do natural fermentation, that we can't do orange wine, we can't blend countries together, we can't hop wines. So we say, you know what, if we can just buy some of the best fruit in Europe and we can use any technique from around the world that we want with full flexibility, let's try and create some really differentiated wines and not try and copy anything. Uh, and, the, and the fine line, I think, for us is making high-quality wines without being gimmicky. And I think that's what we've tried to avoid, is just trying really weird stuff for the sake of it. Um, you know. As you say, it, maybe it was your naivety, but I think that has led to something, a creation of something that's so interesting, and that's how you sort of break boundaries, because, yeah, the French have been making wine in such a way for such a long time, and they do it really, really well. Yeah. You're probably not going to be able to do it that well. Yeah, oh, no, so. and, and here's a funny thing, too. When people say to me, when people taste our wines, or they'll taste a wine that we've made in a very different way, they'll say, oh, this doesn't taste like a, a, a Burgundy Pinot Noir. You know, and I say I completely agree. We don't we don't want to. And I honestly think that so many parts of Europe and the world make phenomenal wines. Why compete? You know, like if, if Bordeaux makes brilliant quality claret from Sauvignon, uh, Cab Sauvignon Merlot, just let them do it. Let let them have that. You know that 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 um, platform, and we'll do something else. And what what's the reception been to to these more idiosyncratic wines? You know what? Much better than I had thought they'd be. And the funny thing is as well is that. They've, we've sold them to restaurants and shops and people who I thought were the people who definitely wouldn't want them. You know, so, I mean, so some of the restaurants we sell to have a very classic wine list. And some of the wine buyers, so we deal with one wine buyer who was the ex-head sommelier and wine buyer for Alain de Casse in Paris. Like, very, very classic wine buyer. He was one of the first champions that we had in the London restaurant scene. And he created a, an urban winery list at one of their Mayfair restaurants and had us kind of center stage. Um, so I've been, I've been really impressed and surprised by the open-mindedness of the London wine community. Uh, yeah. So um, is it a little bit like beer where, you know, the people who work in it day-to-day are very open and it's the, the audience that is perhaps more conservative? I don't know. Uh, what should I say here? What, <laughs> what should I say to be like... Uh, so the honest reality that I think is that I think most people who are close to the customers are very open-minded and they have a clear idea that they want to bring something innovative to their customer base and they are interested in our products because they think the story is good, the products are high quality and it's something different. I found with a bit of the London wine world that it can be a bit cliquey and that often places will have very, very similar wine lists because they just hang around with each other. Uh, and so one thing we, we should probably be better at is integrating with those with that side of the world I think because yeah I don't come from that world and so I, I've never had that, that network so we've had to go for everything kind of you know blind 
how, how have you found the, the the sales process? I presume that that's what you're doing, you know, most of the year. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we've been lucky. So, I guess first and foremost, we're a really small producer. So, twenty eight thousand bottles is our total production in a year, which what's sounds that, like a lot. What's that in liters? Oh, I don't know. Divide it by or by times it by point seven five. So about eighteen thousand, twenty thousand liters. Um, and so, yeah, that's for wine. That's tiny. That's really tiny. Um, and we found that actually the demand's been quite good and, and we've been able to sell the wines quite easily, even through quite a small network of, of uh, kind of on and off trade operations. Um, and also we've got the little tap room here. So we have a little winery bar inside the winery that we can sell direct to the customers. So, we, I mean, we've, I mean, you know, I don't want to curse it, but we have found that the reception and the demand for the wines have been quite good so far, um, which, has been, which has been reassuring because we're not cheap. You know, um, because our volume is small and the quality is high, and our cost of our fruits really high, it's yeah, it's not a cheap product. And do you, do you find that the the places that you're selling to are they dominated by some big wine distributors or big wine makers? And it's that's the real limiting factor for you. I mean, obviously you're yeah. so small, you're not hitting those limits probably. But yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's, it's an interesting question actually because I, I hadn't even thought about it before when we got into it. But the reality is that a lot of the restaurants that could be very big customers of ours the last thing they want is to take on another supplier. So a lot of them will have, I mean, like, I mean, a lot of the restaurants we deal with have gone through kind of cleaning stages where they've gone from 27 distributors to 10 just to make their whole inventory and ordering process better. And the idea of taking on an independent supplier with a completely separate way of ordering wine and delivering wine and everything else is a, is a nightmare. Mm. So we've had to, I guess, look, look for partners who are supportive enough to go, you know what, we'll take on the extra this just because we like the like, like the product so much. Do you sell direct or do you do three suppliers? Every single thing so far has been direct, and it's it's mainly been because that way we can we can have that relationship with the customer, so we can we can let them inside the story and the process easier. We can everything that gets told to them or, or given to them is honest and true and what we want to say. Whereas I've tried working with a distributor in Singapore before, and the messaging was so lost that it the whole ethos of the brand was lost and the product was lost through the process. And also, we haven't got the margin. Like We're so, we're so close to the wire, cash flow-wise, that we haven't got the margin to give away. Mm. Um, but we have just started working with Beercraft, a beer, a, a beer distribution company. And they, they distribute our Bethnal Bubbles, the one you've just tried. And again, because it's, it's a bit beery, you know? So it's, and I thought it was much more interesting to be the only wine product on a beer list than number 734 on a on a wine distribution list yeah and their, their market is mostly restaurants as well so it's it's ending up in the right place yeah for you guys yeah, yeah, yeah. and i think with your attitude as well it, it fits the sort of the beer market so well because i suppose the pretense of the the wine world is it's very sort of maybe a bit stuffy and people are quite set in their ways and it needs to be their way or the, the highway and you're obviously come in and Mixed, mixed stuff up. And yeah, and I, and I think also about. because the craft beer has gone through this revolution where people are much more open-minded about small producers and, and, and more unusual ways of making beer, that it's not unusual in the beer space to, to see something quirky and interesting and give it a go. Whereas if you saw something in the wine space, you might just be a bit more apprehensive because it's, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it hasn't gone through that craft revolution yet, maybe. Have you, have you felt much of a kickback from people who are in that sort of old-school wine mindset of... You know, it has to be done this way. A little bit, a little bit. You know what? In all honesty, not very much. There is one restaurant that will remain nameless, and 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 one, and so it's, it's near here in, in Shoreditch, and um, 
and it's Michelin starred and it's a really good restaurant. And I, I said, look, you know, I'm not trying to push our product, but if you ever want to try anything, let, let, let me know. And their philosophy was, we just don't believe in buying a wine that's not made next to the vineyard. Because for them, it didn't make sense that you'd ever transport the grapes and, and make a, a product off-site. And I, honest, and, I, and I can completely understand that rationale. I mean, I, I get it. it. It makes perfect sense. If your grapes are really fresh and they're picked fresh, make them at the winery. Make them at the vineyard. And that was that, one of my biggest concerns was that, are we going to reduce quality by bringing that fruit, you know, eight hours or 12 hours or 14 hours in a refrigerated truck? And the thing that I found out is not at all is the simple answer. And actually, a lot of premium wineries will refrigerate their grapes prior to pressing them anyway. So they'll pick the fruit in the morning when it's cold. They'll put it into refrigerated uh, buildings, and they'll what's called cold soak their fruit. Because pressing for white wines, if you press the grapes cold, you get a very crisp, clean juice. And also, the humidity inside a refrigerated space is quite dry. And so you get a bit of that uh, residual water reduction and intensification of flavors. So it's generally it's either not bad or pretty good for wine for the grapes to be chilled first. And we get that as part of our journey. And if you think how far fruit from around the world travels and comes into UK supermarkets, eight hours in a refrigerated truck from Bordeaux is not, or 12 hours is not the end of the world. Yeah. I, I guess it depends on sort of your outlook. Like maybe part of their philosophy isn't just the fresh grapes. It's they're wanting the appellation and the rules, whereas another restaurant yeah. down the road is wanting the exact opposite. Yeah, 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 maybe. Yeah, and I think some of the restaurants we sell to, they quite like a bit of that, you know, kind of like fuck you attitude of like, look, all we care about is having really tasty wines. And if the story is quite interesting as well, you know, hmm. I guess, you know, we are quite controversial to a certain extent. And I think some restaurants like that, you know. I mean, your winery is literally called Renegade. So yeah. they know what they're getting, I presume. Yeah, but I don't They think, know what to expect. But honestly, the, the reason it's called Renegade is that when I, I used to listen to... There was a band called Ex Ambassadors, and one of their songs is called Renegades. And I just like the name. And the idea... And that's what I said. The funny thing was, when we started the business, the idea wasn't to make very differentiated radical wines. Of course, wines. yeah, you said. Yeah, it was like... So it's, it's kind of turned out to be quite an appropriate name, but with, that wasn't the intention of it in the beginning. In fact, when, so when, I, when we hired Josh, our first winemaker... I said to him at our first lunch together, because we, we, uh, it's a different story, but we met in uh, Bosnia, and um, he said, what, what are you going to call it? And I said, I'm thinking about calling it Renegade. And he was like, nah, that's shit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's funny. And I said, no, I think, honestly, I, I like the idea of it being one word. I like the idea of it being not related to any individual. You know, like some brands are called after the name of the person who does it, which I think is a bit pretentious. Yep. No wines nature. would have a different feel to it. Uh, well, it? yeah, horrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so, in saying that, when you did decide to leave your job in the finance world, yeah, wine was the way to go. What was the next stages then? You mean how it all got set up? And how, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so I'd known I'd known about the concept of urban wineries for a few years. Uh, I'd researched them, and I'd realised that it was the easiest way to lose a lot of money. Because unlike beer or gin or other things that are made from ingredients that can be made all year round, grapes only get harvested once a year. And just out of, I mean, in case someone's interested, my original plan was to make at least two vintages a year. So one from Northern Hemisphere and one from Southern Hemisphere. So in the winter or in, in our kind of springtime, we could get uh, Malbec from Argentina or Cabernet Sauvignon from Australia. But I'm not sure if you're aware, but it's, it's illegal to vinify grapes that are not grown within the EU. So it became, it became, illegal, it became impossible. Um, 
And so, yeah, so my research was that opening an urban winery is the quickest way to, 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 to go bankrupt. So I didn't do it until I just thought, I closed my eyes and I thought, God, this, if, you can, if you can make really interesting wine and people like it, there must be, it must be viable. And so I just closed my eyes to the finances and just cracked on with it. And so I sourced a lot of fruit. I looked at barrel producers and space and equipment. And then the next step was really hiring someone who knew all about the technical winemaking side. Uh, and we hired uh, yeah, an incredible Kiwi uh, winemaker called Josh Hammond. He, before he joined us, he was at Villa Maria in New Zealand. And uh, yeah, he brought all the knowledge and expertise and passion that, that was required to help us into that, into that production stage. Yeah, he's now gone back to New Zealand. God knows why. <laughs> well, no, I know why, actually, because he wants to have a family and he wants to live back in New Zealand. And life in London's tough because the money in wine is not great and if you want to have kids and buy a house it's, it's not the place to do nigh it. on impossible yeah. yeah well i'll drink to that yeah um <clears throat> next, we... next vino yeah what, what's next 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 one is actually a much much more classic it's um barrel fermented chardonnay uh the grapes come from northern italy perhaps not everyone who's listened to this podcast would think about the fact i think in my head a couple of years ago i thought all wine was oak Oh yeah, oak aged. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. What, what what's the the thinking and the difference between? Okay. Well, yeah. So uh, so we use both stainless steel tanks, which which are temperature controlled, and we use a lot of oak. Um, we generally buy our oak barrels from France, from the Champagne region, and we buy them as used barrels. So we buy them as barrels having previously had Pinot Noir or Chardonnay in them, and the rationale behind that is that. We want the micro-oxidation or the softening of the wine through the oak that you get from used barrels, but we don't want the super oakiness that you get from brand new barrels. And so inside of each, when you buy a new barrel, you, de- you decide, you tell the cooper, I want it medium plus or medium or lightly toasted. And so that toasting will give you that kind of emphasis of spice and oak and all the rest of it. Vanillin and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> And so this wine, I mean, this is a style of wine that I personally love, but it's not for everybody. And I, I kind of describe this wine as a kind of burgundy on steroids. So it's barrel fermented. So we press, the, we press the grape juice and we put the grape juice straight into the oak barrel and it ferments inside the barrel. It then also goes through that secondary stage called malolactic fermentation, where the malic acid turns to lactic acid, which gives it that creaminess. And it's uh, super oaky. It's- yeah. Yeah, yeah. On, on the palate it's really oaky. <coughs> Sorry, on the nose it's really oaky. And then on the palate it is really creamy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, like, rich and, and smooth. Yeah, I, I mean, I call this one Burgundy on steroids because it's, we make it in a similar style to Burgundy Chardonnays, or certain styles of Burgundy Chardonnay, but we also ferment a portion of it on the skins, like an orange wine, and we blend it back in at the, at the, before the bottling stage. So it gives it a much more intense, aromatic and textural style. I mean, it's, it's one of those wines that if you don't like oaked Burgundy-style Chardonnays, you'll hate this. Mm. Um, but, you know, again, we just don't want to make boring wine. So we want to make wines that are punchy and we might be slightly divisive, but at least at least they've got some character to them. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's unlike a lot of wines I've had. It's not hu- hugely grapey. It's, it's got lots of what in beer I'd consider kind of esters, sort of um, that really high intense uh, ester that you get off a lot of Belgian beer, I, I think, is, is sort of there. And it's, it's a very heady wine yeah i mean i i describe it as well as a, a food wine because it is complex and heavy and oaky and creamy it's often a bit intense to have it as a session kind of wine 
Oh, definitely, but it's yeah. so big on the news, and there's so much flavour coming off that. And yeah, then, as Johnny said, then it goes into the sort of lovely creamy. Yeah, I love it. I love it. The funny thing is, and so one of the things we've done, we decided as a brand, is that we don't. We try every year. We try and make new stuff. So we've got a couple of wines that we keep the same because they're just crowd pleasers and people like them and they sell well. But a lot of the wines we change. So we change the vineyards. We change the production methods. We change. That you know whether we inoculate or leave them natural ferment, we change we change lots of things every year, and we haven't made this wine again, this Chardonnay again, because 2018 was such a brilliant year in the UK that we axed all our Italian Chardonnay and bought only English Chardonnay from Essex. Um, so yeah, we'll see how that turns out. What, what, what's it like if you're changing things every single year? That means you're tearing up the rule book every single year. Mm. You know, a brew has four weeks. That's all it takes, and if it's a mistake, he can pour it away yeah. that's risky for him how yeah. risky is that for you it's been really risky but i just think I, the whole philosophy of the brand is like that we're we're balls deep in this like we're gonna have we've got we really want to try and make interesting things and we're happy to take the risk and not but like you know not everything has worked out we've so we, we aged some organic cabernet sauvignon merlot that we made from albanian fruit and we aged it in new cherry new chestnut and ex-kentucky bourbon barrels and the chestnuts work brilliantly. The cherry has been a complete disaster. And the bourbon barrel aged Cab Merlot has kind of like, it's gone so funky. I don't know what the reaction was between the, whisk, the, old, the, the residual, the whiskey, and the, and the American oak and the wine. But it's, it's, it's and according to like Andrea, our new winemaker, it hasn't gone wrong, but the, but the reaction's been quite severe to the point where we think that it might be interesting to release it as, a, just as, as, an, as an experimental kind of batch. But the idea before was to blend it in with the rest of the Cab Sav and, and just give it like a slight element of difference. But it's, it's so strange. They that just dominate. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the other one that I think's worked quite well but is weird is we've done a, um, an, a Kentucky bourbon barrel fermented English sparkling rosé. So traditional method. Have you got a big label? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. It's that barrel up there. It just says, what the fuck on it? That one, that's, that experiment one. Um, and so the idea is that's been in barrel for a year or two, and we're going to we'll inoculate it again with yeast and sugar, bottle it in a clear champagne-style bottle, and maybe just leave it on the lees or disgorge it. But it's, it, it, ta- it smells like Jack Daniels on lemonade, and it tastes like a, like a, like a rosé champagne. It's a, it's, a, it's a funny one. Um, but yeah, again, we try and keep the experiment small. That's one barrel. Mm. So yeah, um, you're not exactly gonna like yeah, bankrupt yourself. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. twenty-eight thousand bottles in total at the moment. I'd say sixty-five percent of those are clean, well-made wines that you'd find quite approachable. Then another twenty-five percent of much more intense divisive style wines either unfiltered um you know country blend skin contact uh strange uh, wood aging and then the other the, 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 whatever the rest was of that number is the real quirky experiments yeah let's talk about yeast yeah so yeast is is a huge thing in beer all the different variations of it are, are a huge a huge yeah. part of the different styles that mm-hmm. are produced is, is that the same case <clears throat> if we're leaving out sort of the, the low intervention wines yeah. is it a huge deal within the, the cleaner wines okay so I can I'll tell you what I know about it but I again like my caveat is I've learned a heck of a lot over the last three years of being involved and being 
day to day on the winemaking front, but I had I've ha- relied heavily upon the expertise of our winemakers. So what, what I've learned is that so and, what, and the way that we approach it is that we we use yeast strains that are not often used on traditional varieties. For example, we, we, we take a Sauvignon Blanc from Bordeaux grapes and we use a yeast strain that's predominantly used in New Zealand to make New Zealand Sauvignon. And so the idea is to try and bring out a bit more of the fruity, green apple kind of characteristics or grassy characteristics of a New Zealand Sauvignon into a French grape. And we've done the same thing with a German Riesling with a yeast strain often used in um, uh, Adelaide Hills, Australia. And everything else we do is airborne or skinborne yeast fermentations. Uh, so we've moved completely away from inoculating our wines after the first year, and now everything's natural except for those two those two whites. So, answer to your question, I I know that the yeast plays a massive part in the flavour profile or the aroma profile of wines, um, but I'm not an expert on which ones are best for which. Um, I just know that the way we've approached it from a natural perspective is that we like some of the complexities and strange things that occur in naturally fermented wines in London. Uh, because our new winemaker, Andrea, is, he, he's convinced this, the, the, the contribution from the airborne yeast in our wines is much more significant than I originally thought. Because traditionally, uh, naturally fermented wines are based upon the residual yeast on the skins of the grapes. But he thinks that from tasting all of our wines and seeing how easy our wines go through uh, fermentation, even after bottling. So if we do primary fermentation continued in bottle, often yeasts will will panic or die or struggle to continue fermentation in the bottle. So he thinks that there's something in the air in London that makes some of our natural wines special. Um, So there is some spontaneous fermentation yeast in the air that, that's uh, what he that's what he thinks yeah. i mean I, I thought it was probably 90 percent skin contribution but he thinks it's much higher in terms of the air contribution um but no for some reason we've all of our f- natural ferments kick off super easy here super easy yeah it's yeah it's almost like london air is like um it's like turbocharged with whatever's in the air well i remember james used to brew uh, for urban farmhouse what 20 doors down from here yeah he propagated his own house strain from the walls of the brewery he was in mm. so even if it's just a bethnal green kind of yeah yeah, yeah. Well, funk and, there, and there are loads of bakers around here loads of bakers loads of brewers who knows you know who knows what's in the air yeah um so i mean yeah maybe that's maybe that's the angle that london will end up playing you know um finding your appellation just through the yeast strains that yeah, we're yeah. all breathing in and yeah. out exactly aoc bethnal green <laughs> <laughs> the rules are there are no rules yeah um should, should we try something that's uh Go on naturally yeah, yeah. derived we'll try we'll, we'll we'll try one that i really like and then we'll try one that i really hate so the first <laughs> one is um so this is um three so it's naturally fermented in a georgian quivery which is a big earthenware kind of amphora style fermentation vehicle and it's uh, English Bacchus from Herefordshire and it's uh, de-stemmed by hand we use chicken wire to rub the berries uh, over chicken wire so the grapes fall through whole and the idea behind that is it's very gentle so you get you get initial fermentation inside the berry without berry without oxygen almost like carbonic-y uh, and this is a wine that spent three months on the skins all natural yeasts uh, pressed off uh, and then aged in this amphora style vehicle so sweet and fruity. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. How, you know, again, this is kind of naturally in the in the winemaking process. But we try and make natural wines or wines that have a natural approach, but are still very clean and approachable. You know? No intervention was a word Jolly and I learned recently. 
Yeah, low intervention. You know what? It's funny because I actually think we're quite high intervention. Like we're low intervention in that we don't put extra things in it, but we actually do intervene in the process quite a lot. And I, I think it's quite funny actually because I was talking to a Bordeaux winemaker the other day, and they're talking about natural wine, you know. And, and their their philosophy was wine just isn't natural because they're they're, they're thinking as well if the grape fell and fermented exposed to oxygen it would turn into vinegar so no winemaking in their mind was natural yep and so it's it's and so intervention is necessary and so low intervention means you don't do that much i guess but actually because we want to create interesting styles we actually do quite a lot so we decide do we hand harvest we decide do we use natural yeast we decide how long on skins we decide which wood we decide do we filter we decide like actually it is very high intervention yeah, it's high. Also ship the grapes over from countries. Yeah, So I think our wines are high intervention, but no bullshit sort of thing. Like we don't add stuff that's not necessary. We don't fine, so we don't use animal products to fine our wines. A lot of people may not know that animal products are highly used in winemaking: egg protein, milk protein, um, isinglass, which is um, uh, a, a fish swim bladder, is often yeah. used in the clarification of wines. And we don't do this, not because we're vegans, just because we just don't want to add that crap into the wine if our customers won't mind that it's not perfectly clear or won't mind that there's tartrates in the wine if it gets really cold. So I guess we're we're high intervention, low additives. Maybe that's what it is. What's amazing about this one we're tasting is it smells so sweet and fruity and then finishes so, so dry. Yeah, yeah. So we don't stop the... F- so again, like uh, in terms of no intervention, we don't stop the fermentation. So a lot of, a lot of wineries will uh, get a wine very, very cold or add sulfur to a wine to stop the fermentation. So there's still residual sugar left in the wine. We don't do it here because... Not because we're, we don't want to, more just because we haven't got the technology and we haven't got the spend to be able to stop wines in a clean way and the only way for us to do it would be to add loads of sulfur and we'd rather not so yeah this wine Bacchus is this grape and this, this grape is a it's a grape that came from Germany in the 30s it's not a pure Vina Ferifera strain it was, a, it was an invented varietal um, but it's Germanic so it should be quite aromatic and floral um, so it smells sweet but it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the aromatics that make you think it's sweet but actually there's no sugar in this at all mm. Which which is very IPA esque, which is there's yeah. a perceived sweetness from the the hop yeah. aromas you're getting, and then cracker yeah. dry. It's so funny because you know um, customers come in and say, oh, "Can I have a dry white wine?" And I'm thinking to myself, like with my new winey head on, all of our wines are white, all our wines are dry. You know, they've got no residual sugar in them. But my sister, who doesn't come from a wine world, she often comes and helps in the winery. And if a customer asks her, she'll say, "Go for the Bacchus. That's the sweet one." You know, because that she thinks it's sweet. You know, and it's um, yeah. So I stopped telling people it's it's dry. You know, so it's whatever you think it is. Yeah, yeah. We did a podcast with an alcohol charity, Alcohol Change UK, uh, a couple of weeks ago, talking about alcohol policy, mm. um, and we got chatting about ABVs. Yeah. Um, and obviously, in the craft beer world, ABVs have gone up. Um, probably i don't know on average 30 40 50 percent so your average drink now is probably around five percent it used to be around four uh-huh. wine yeah has had the same phenomena in the last couple of years well i mean i you know what i don't know the answer but i think i mean so my first answer is i think there's a massive opportunity in the wine space below abv wines right i think that 
I think there is a, a, a great opportunity out there. And I wonder, and I don't know the technicals enough, I wonder if England could be a great place to make low ABV wines, only because the amount of sunshine we get and the, and the, and the natural sugar levels in grapes are so much lower. So, it, so, for example, one of the things people maybe don't realize is that in the English wine space, there's something called chaptalization. It's the, it's the additions of sugar into, uh, into grape juice that increases the potential alcohol of the wine. In the UK, you're allowed to chaptalize wine by 3% alcohol. So an English producer may pick a wine naturally at 8%, and they will add sugar to take it up to 11 um, to give it a kind of a round, uh, better mouthfeel, a more, a, a more substantial wine. But I, I don't know what the answer is, but I wonder if there's an opportunity in England to start making naturally lower ABV wines. I'm sure some, an English winemaker will call me and tell me I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And they're probably right. But our, our natural sugar levels are lower. Um, and I, I mean, yeah, but has it crept up over the last few years? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. We don't, we don't chaptalize our wine, so we don't add sugar. And do you have like an average, um, alcohol content or is it just, well, if you're not stopping fermentation, it must vary depending on the yeah, weather. It and... just depends. Just depends. So like our lowest ABV wine is probably 11 and our highest is 14, 14 and a half. Okay. Um, and our highest stuff is normally the stuff we get from Lombardy in northern Italy, the Chardonnay and the Pinot. Uh, the Sauvignon's about 12. Our English Bacchus is around about 11 and a half. So, so it's pretty average on the sort of yeah. scale of things. Yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty um, average, yeah. But yeah, no, so when uh, Johnny was talking to um, Alcohol Change, he was saying, you know, 15 years ago your average bottle was maybe 11% and mm. now your average bottle is maybe 14.5% interesting yeah it's funny actually when I, when I even before I started this business I wanted to I approached uh, alcohol and mental health charities because I I mean not that anyone cares but I've, I've had mental health issues in the past and I, and I wanted to try and tackle potentially some of the some of the issues around mental health and alcohol consumption like on the bottle on the label you know so i said you know just even it's just a thing saying like if you think you have an alcohol problem call these guys or is alcohol causing an issue in your life call these guys and everybody wouldn't allow me to put their name or number on the bottle no one wanted the association and it was i think it was because um they were worried that their major donors would react to being associated with an alcohol brand even though the intention was actually right so which is bizarre because drink aware are plastered all over yeah. beer advertising oh yeah i didn't talk to those guys <laughs> yeah, <that's the> <laughs> yeah. yeah maybe maybe yeah but i mean that's the most natural place for it like we have to admit that if you drink alcohol there's a potential for you to go off the deep end and the place you're going to be reached easiest is on your and perhaps at your lowest moments yeah is on the the can of the stuff that's yeah. causing you the issue yeah the well the, yeah the, I mean, the plan i mean the plan was to give a, a, ton, a small percentage of whatever money we made from it back to that charity as well as a, as a thank you for letting us do it but anyway it didn't happen we haven't done it so Next. Yes. What are we on? 
We're on a, the Riesling. It's our 2018 Riesling. Uh, this one was uh, fermented in stainless steel. So yeah, uh, German Riesling from the Pfalz, uh, like southwest of Germany, the Black Forest. Um, we work with a small family there, and we, we picked two vineyards. One was, one was grown on uh, granite, and the other one was grown on something else that wasn't granite. I keep saying sandstone, but I'm not sure it's not sandstone. Um, anyway, the idea was, again, to try and create a Riesling with German grapes, but with a slightly more modern twist. But th- this, this wine is uh, completely from the tank, so no filtration, no sulfur. I'm going to guess this is a big seller. We haven't, sold, we haven't packaged it yet. Okay. No, it's probably the one of our most anticipated wines that we haven't packaged yet. It smells yet. of over, overripe peach. It's just oh, yeah? fucking fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, 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 and it's so accessible, but like really tasty. Yeah, this, this is probably the wine that... Because we have inside the winery, if you come in here, you'll see all the tanks and you'll see we've, we've got like chalkboards on them telling everyone what things are. And this is probably the wine that people ask, when's the Riesling ready? Because I think... I don't know I'm, I'm going to add myself to that list. Yeah, okay, yeah. When, when's that ready? Yeah, uh, you know what? There's a, the problem at the moment is that there's some sort of European bottle shortage. And so we're struggling to get the exact bottles that we want to bottle our wines. Wow. Um, so well, I don't know. The idea, Ideally, this will be bottled at the end of March and ready at the end of May, June time. I'm not sure if it happens in the beer world, but in the wine world, there's a phenomenon called bottle shock. Yep. So, yeah, yeah, when you bottle a wine, if it goes through filtration, even just the process just knocks the life out of a wine a bit, and it takes... Has, has the wine world sort of got to grips with why that is? Oh, I've no idea. I don't know. Because yeah, brewers just hold their hands up and go, we don't know, we, no, just, I don't we just have know. to wait. Well, I mean, I, you know what, I'm sure some people do, but I don't. But some, I've, I've got some winemaking friends who, who don't believe in it, who think that it's just a bit of a myth, you know. But I, I, I personally think that a wine really closes down straight after bottling. Um, yeah, and we try and leave all of our stills for at least like four to six weeks. And the sparkling, the research that I read on the sparkling was you should leave it at least three or four months after, after dosage and, and corking. So bottle shortages then, we've seen in the beer world this huge move into cans. Yeah. Obviously way better for transportation, no light struck, less oxidization. Yeah. Is there ever going to be a move to that in the, the wine world if you're short of bottles? Uh, I think so, and I really want to do it. And it's, if you look at what's happened in the US in the wine in can space, it's light years ahead of where we are. And they've gone through that revolution, which was all wine in can must be crap, and it has to be cheap because it can't be good. And there's producers like Underwood in, uh, in Oregon that are, that are putting really high-quality Pinot in cans and selling it for a good price. I'm not sure the UK is ready for that premium price wine in can yet. I just think that people just, would you pay £10 for a 375 mil? No, it, it's wouldn't. a huge challenge in beer. Getting cans into restaurants and high-end, yeah. high-end bars is, is really tough because it's not associated with quality, a, a metal thing that you crack. Yeah, no, and so I, I think there is a space. I just try to, I'm, I'm just trying to work out what the right thing to do is for us. Because our product, as I said, is, you know, we think it's premium. We think it's, we make such small volumes that we're not cheap. I, mean, I don't think we're ridiculous, but we're not cheap. And so if we put it into a can, would people still pay? Would people pay £10 a can? Yeah, I don't I mean, know. There was such a resistance very early on. You know, you look at people like Beaverton here, one of the first in the UK to start going sort of solely into can. Um, and no one really wanted it. And then all of a sudden, I mean, they were sort of freaks within the industry up as far as desirability. But then all of a sudden, yeah. Well, everyone I, wants it. And if you look at like um, all the beers that we deal with, 
they're all going into Cannes well, because I'll tell you something we're definitely going to do it and but I just I'm hesitant about the best way to do it and so the things that we've experimented with so far I'll go and grab a can out the fridge in a minute we, we've done some trials with secondary ferment in can so you, you tank fermenter wine or you barrel fermenter wine then you add a little bit of yeast and sugar and you, and you can it before the secondary fermentation. So it, it goes through secondary ferment in the can. A bit like a beer... Uh, what do you call it? What's it called? Like a can... Uh, fermented. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, so uh, Moore Brewing in um, Bristol, they secondary ferment in their cans with their beers. Do they? And okay. as far as I know, they're the only ones because they, they've sort of got certification from camera saying this is real ale in a can, which I okay. don't... And I think we're Val are going to start doing it quite soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we, we can't spread that rumour. <laughs> yeah. the, the monks will come knocking. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I love the idea of it. I'll open a can in a minute. You can give it a crack. But, it, but because... Because we don't know much about the technicalities of the can world, and because, well, I don't know, all the winemakers that I've worked with, that I've interacted with, and the ones that have worked and worked for Renegade, have never done wine in can. Like, it's not normal, you know? So everything we try and do is a bit experimentation. So. And it's nuts, because there'd be such a, you know, my biggest issue with wine, and I, in my house, I have so many bottles of wine where you've left maybe. 200 mil at the bottom because you didn't want that final glass yeah. if suddenly there's 330 mil cans that's me me oh, and my girlfriend no you're not allowed that's not allowed 330 mil is not an EU allowed size of, ca- of wine ah no so, so what size of can will it have to be 250 is legal 187 and a half is legal 375 is legal so I think it would have to be a 375 let's all get fucked up on 375 mil cans yeah it's basically half a bottle yeah yeah so, I mean, that's fantastic. Yeah. But that is great because it means you can have a glass of wine at home instead of having to crack a bottle. And because also, with, yeah. with the Portman Group now, I don't know whether wine gets really stuck into the Portman Group like beer does, but they, they're just introducing a code which involves stopping or, or at least reducing the amount of people putting single-serve alcoholic beverages out to market that are very strong. So they want okay. to make it so that if you put a 10% Imperial Stout in a can... Uh, it it might be stopped, uh, oh. which fundamentally I disagree with. However, I see the logic behind it because once you crack that can, you've got to finish it, particularly with beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it would be a great way for wine to remain ahead of that curve to have a half size bottle of wine. Yeah, I think I, I think it's a great idea. I want to do it. I just don't know what the best approach is because I, I just I honestly think that people won't pay 10 quid for a can of wine and I, I you know I think would I probably not I think the um, the off trade is probably where you start you know I, yeah. I, that's where the growth would, would be and in the beer world I see a lot of breweries doing 330 or 440 yeah and 440s seem to be where it goes on the off trade because price point is, is yeah. right whereas if you put 440 into a pub oh, it's costing no. 7 quid yeah. 8 quid for a can yeah. so I, I would say your initial sort of enjoyment would be in the off trade and then, yeah. then maybe bars will follow because they'll see the benefit of having I think so. the uh, you know, space in the fridge it's yeah. easy for service because I think the way that I kind of look at it I, I think well okay, if I was going in like, so I, I, if I walk around Lidl, Aldi or Marks and Spencer's you you can get you can get a two fifty can of Bellini or gin and tonic or Jack and Coke in a in a shop for about one pound ninety five right like three for a fiver or whatever it is and I think that people have to would have to decide to pay a premium for a wine product 
And so I, I think it has to be, it has to look different, feel different, be interesting. It just can't just be cheap wine in a can at that price. Yeah, but there's so many specialist wine uh, wholesalers as well that you know they could fit really nicely into those places. So people that want to spend yeah ten quid on a, a really nice can that or wine that, that you know a, a bottle would cost far far more so they can just try it yeah split, yeah. A, split a small can with their partner or something and it means yeah. you can try more as well anyway well, do you want should we open that can and see let's how go it, for it the works? can okay. we've, we've hyped it up Give so much sec. yeah so you've brought an unmarked nicely chilled can yeah I've do, you want, the, do you want to open it near uh, I, I, I near sho- the microphone yeah i shoved this in the in the freezer box for a while so this, this is a this is the same as the bethnal bubbles the hopped sparkling but it's secondary fermented in can and I'm going to open it next to my face, next to the microphone, and I'm sure it'll go all over me. Ah, you see, this is one that's worked perfectly. There you go. So again, you know, it's, it's, it hasn't overflown. It's, it's, it's had a nice zip and a nice fizz, and let's give it a taste. See, this is what we wanted it to work out like. So this, just to remind everyone, this is secondary fermented canned hopped wine there's yeah. so many firsts in that yeah you don't so it, really know where it's to unfiltered start. so it's cloudy it looks like a whip beer yeah oh, see what we found with the cans is that the the aromatics of the hops have oxidized slightly more Can so it, it's it's a bit it's a bit muted it's, it's a bit muted compared to the bottle yeah. there, there's also that um yeah that slightly funky older hop aroma to it. It smells more like a beer than it did in bottle. It does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, what do you reckon? What's that you reckon? You reckon the can does something to it? I don't know, but if I smelt that blind, I'd say that was a beer. I th- I, yeah. I think the hops are just, they're fresher, they're rawer, there's a bit of bottle shock in yeah. there, I'd, yeah. I'd say. Yeah. And it's not as fizzy. It doesn't seem as fizzy. It's just a bit more, mute. it's a bit more subtle. It's a bit more subtle. For me, anyway. I mean, the carbonation on it is amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess natural, naturally, I mean, secondary fermented, so no, no force, right? So it's, yeah. Yeah, if we could do that every time, I'd be happy. But I, I just don't know if we can replicate this. I mean, we're just, we're just new to this game. It's, it's sort of opening up, actually, as <clears throat> I think lo- lots of uh, aromas that were trapped in the can are lifting off. Yeah. Now it's getting more like it was from the bottle. It's getting that gooseberry thing back and... That really lovely soft citrusy mosaic thing. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, this is a three thirty mil can, and so I know I said before that it's illegal to keep a wan, a, a, wan, a wine in a three thirty mil can. Legally, this is no longer a wine. So because we add hops, it's technically an aromatized wine-based drink, <laughs> and an aromatized wine-based drink does not have the same EU regulations as a wine. So we can put this in three thirties. So what are you going to call it on the label if you ever released it? You can't call it a. Uh an aromatized we wine do ba- we do you have to legally you have to if you look at the bottle even the bottle of the bubble says an aromatized wine based drink and and because it's now not uh, approved by trading uh, wine standards it's approved by trading standards you have to put the ingredients to so ah. we, we've had to put uh, this contains hops and sugar and yeast and I think you should just call the actual beer wine you should call it that Beer wine. Ju- ju- yeah. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Call it an aromatized wine-based drink. Yeah. And just, I th- that would pop on the shelf, right? Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about beer, Johnny. Let's talk about AVB. Let's talk about imperial stouts and imbibiots of wicked weed. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk 
So, I hope you enjoyed that episode about grape-flavoured alcoholic beverages, as uh, I think Warwick will have to call his canned wine. Um, what an exceptionally interesting guy and business and world that he lives in. Yeah, I can't believe that you just can't call it wine. Really? Why, why not? Why not? Why not? There you go. There's, there's a wine podcast for so, someone to, yeah, to launch. I think the first thing you sort of take out of that is the parameters within the wine industry. And if you look at the things going into beer now, and even traditionally, if you go back to you know putting all the fruit in beer and stuff when it was more mixed firm, um, everything was beer unless you were German. Yeah. Um, but these these parameters that are put in that you can't just call it wine in a can. Yeah, I mean it's crazy. Like, imagine if you couldn't call it an IPA if it didn't use British hops. Like, that would have changed everything for the craft beer revolution. They, we, we'd all be we'd all be obsessed with American hop ale or, or whatever it would be. We'd have to call everything else different. This whole IPA culture that's been built. Um, I just can't believe that there's those rules. Um, like the geographical ones, I kind of get. You go, well, that's from this area. But even within that area to say, well, it has to be made this way uh, and at this time of year and during the full moon, that's not quite what Burgundy is or anything like that. But that, that to us seems mental. Do you think that, that we could, uh, in the beer industry, take a little bit from that, though, to narrow the parameters a little bit? Because there is sometimes you read a beer label and you're like, that is stupid. I mean, I, I, I don't really believe in sort of the BJCP guidelines, I think, they kind of get in the way um i think certainly we could learn from a bit of purity that the wine industry is much better at even even though warwick is trying to push at the push at the door to try and do some more inventive stuff all he's talking about is like putting some hops in his wine or um i don't know using yeasts that aren't from the same place as the grapes um so i think that yeah we could learn a little bit in the simplicity and the purity of of, of the process um, but I don't think we want to introduce any rules to brewing. I think the lack of rules have been good for us. No, definitely. It, it just allows people to do whatever they want. Um, and another thing that really interest, interested me was just how he was like, I wanted to start up a, a wine production, and if I want to get like super rich grapes from an area, and I want to get some sweet grapes from a different area, and I think they'll go really well together, like, of course do that. Like We've been yeah. doing that with beer forever, and you get really good tops from the west coast of America that are super citrusy and fruity and then if you want to bring that down to earth a little bit quite literally with some earthy fuggles and things like that like you, you just do that and it's just that is a given that is yeah. how we've made beer I mean no, no chef has gone well I couldn't do that that's a foreign ingredient like you do what's best for the flavour yeah um, so yeah it's crazy that there's any kind of snootiness around oh well if those those aren't all from this region of, yeah. of France. Or it's, it just seems so obvious. Like, yeah. you want to get the best out of each grape, and if you can take one and take another one and mix them together to get the dryness of one and the sort of long finish of another, then wh- why can't you? And yeah. it's nice that he is sort of breaking down these boundaries. And I think looking towards the beer world, I think we at the start we discussed it, like why did he get into wine and why did he go down that path? And it was because the beer market is potentially oversaturated and the wine market, just no one's breaking down any doors and trying to do something different. Yeah, this whole natural wine thing, 
I think that's still super caught in a in a bubble. Um, it's not natural, Johnny. It's so low intervention. Low intervention, but also low intervention is is quite a relative term because obviously there's a huge there's a fuck ton of intervention going yeah, yeah. on. Um, but yeah, so that's still a really niche thing. Um, and you know, the vast majority of wine drinkers and the vast majority of wine producers aren't touching that kind of stuff. They they look at it as a different kind of product. Completely and. He's trying to get into these sort of high-end restaurants and some of them are laughing him out the door and it's not because of the quality, it's just because these classically trained people in wine can't see the, the wood from the trees. And it's yeah, because of some bullshit rule that somebody made yeah. a couple hundred years ago, which is we laugh at the Reinheitsker, but they should be laughing at the rules that these old French wine producers are coming up with as well, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, yeah, during that podcast, we referenced our podcast with Alcohol Change UK, which you can listen to uh, if you go back about three episodes. Uh, that's there. So please do check out that. Uh, and our understanding of low intervention wine in our last episode with Evan. Uh, yeah. yeah, so it's all tying together. That's the point of the bubble. We're doing it, even though we're probably not meaning to. It's all happening by accident. Uh, so do check out those. And then next month, uh, we have a special edition with our sponsor, uh, of the bubble uh, all about how beer used to be before we termed the term craft <laughs>